Thank you, Roman. Well, good morning, and welcome to Redemption Olds. At this time, we will dismiss the kids. So if your kids are going to Sunday school, now's the time to go. It seems it's never family Sunday when I preach. I don't know if that's by design, but it's where the kids would like me once they got to know me. Um, well, thanks for joining us this long weekend. It is a long weekend, so I prepared a long sermon, and we should probably get to it. Allow me to read to you the story of <clears throat> uh, Thomas Bilney. This is by John Huffman. A thin and frail man sat huddled over an open book as a candle shed its feeble light upon the open page. The book was open to Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Looking up from the passage, Thomas Bilney looked long and hard into the yellow flame on the top of his candle. He cautiously reached out his finger toward the flame. But the hot fire defied his approach, and he pulled back in alarm and dismay. If he could not touch the candle, how would he have the courage to face the flames of the stake tomorrow morning? This question plagued the soul of Thomas Billy, for he had always been a shy man, hardly the man to be considered a mighty man of valor. In fact, he had been just the opposite. He had even faced the stake before and had renounced to the truth in order to spare his life. He shuddered as he remembered the awful guilt that had crushed his heart since that day of denial. He leaned back and closed his eyes, remembering the steps that had brought him a second time to the fire. Thomas Bilney had been born in Norwich, the very city in which he now sat, awaiting the dawn of his final morning on earth. During these days of boyhood and early manhood, Thomas Bilney had groped in the darkness of human reason. A bright lad, Thomas was sent off to the University of Cambridge. There he filled his mind with knowledge, but his heart was empty of any real truth. He made splendid advancement in the arts and sciences, but could not satisfy his hunger for truth. Thomas wrote of these days, I spent all that I had upon these ignorant physicians. Confessions, vigils, fastings, and penance could bring but temporary relief to his troubled heart. One day, in the spring of 1519, the scholar heard of a new book edited by a man named Erasmus. It was a Greek text of the New Testament, set side by side with a new Latin translation done by Erasmus. Thomas Bilney was drawn to the new book out of his scholastic love for the ancient languages, for Greek was fast becoming the talk of all Europe. Bilney went into the streets and finally found a copy, but just as he reached out for it, he drew back in fear. He was well aware that the authorities at Cambridge forbade any Greek and Hebrew Bibles, calling them the sources of all heresies. But Bilney's curiosity overcame his fear, and he purchased the volume of the Greek New Testament and tucked it under his scholastic gown. Back in his room, Bilney drew out the volume and began to read. Hour after hour came and went as he pored over the words of Holy Scripture. In the pages of that book, he found that he had long sought. He found what he had long sought and was particularly struck by a passage from Paul's first epistle to Timothy. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. 1 Timothy 1.15 That night, Thomas Bilney was converted to Christ, Fasts, vigils, pilgrimages, purchases of indulgences had all had failed. Christ had done on the cross of Calvary what Thomas Bilney could not do for himself. No longer did Bilney seek the chambers of the prelates. He had heard the voice of Jesus of Nazareth. Soon the eager young disciple found kindred spirits at Cambridge. 
Over a period of several years, a few young men began to meet and discuss the scriptures at a place in Cambridge called the White Horse Inn. Here were gathered men such as John Lambert, Matthew Parker, John Rogers, Miles Coverdale, John Frith, and William Tyndale. They were men of various interests and backgrounds, but all were united in their love for Novum Testamentum, and they became known as the Scripture Men. They were not all at Cambridge at the same time, but Bilney was an important friend to all of them, and his influence and example impacted their lives. Bilney was personally responsible for the conversion of Hugh Latimer, a splendid scholar who joined the little group at Whitehorse Inn in 1524. All these men knew and loved Bilney as their friend. He was kind, gentle, quiet, unassuming, and patient. The more rugged spirits of bold men like Parker, Rogers, and Tyndale were strongly drawn to the gentle Bilney, and they called him by the affectionate name Little Bilney. His short stature and frail body matched this name well. In 1527, little Bilney was arrested and threatened with death if he would not recant. A stronger man like Luther or Knox would have stood firm. But little Bilney had wilted under the fierce threatenings and had renounced his errors. Immediately after his recantation, Bilney was oppressed with a deep sense of guilt and unworthiness. Like Peter, Bilney had denied his Lord and had gone out and wept bitterly. For over a year, Bilney languished under these doubts and fears. He doubted whether or not God had accepted him. He feared that he had committed the unpardonable sin. He was overwhelmed with the thought that as he had been ashamed of Jesus, so the Son of Man would one day denounce him before the Father. By degrees, Bilney recovered and resolved that he would intentionally get arrested again. This occurred in Norwich in 1531. Now he faced the fire a second time. What would the moral bring? Would his courage fail again? Would little Bilney again deny his Lord? His mind was filled with doubt as he considered his own frailty, but filled with encouragement as he thought of the Lord visiting Peter on the shores of Galilee. Like Peter, perhaps the Lord had given him another opportunity to seal with his blood the testimony of Christ. As Bilney thought on these things, he heard the sound of steps outside his cell. He looked up to find his friend from the White Horse Inn, Matthew Parker, future Archbishop of Canterbury under Elizabeth I. Parker, knowing the frailty and timidity a little Bilney had come to strengthen him, but Parker found that his words were unnecessary. The man who had failed once would not fail a second time. Pointing to the open Bible before him, Thomas Bilney slowly recited these words to his friend. When thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned. Neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. Then with a steady hand, Bilney stretched out his and placed his finger into the small candle. Matthew Parker watched in amazement as his timid friend resolutely held his finger perfectly still as the flame burned the flesh from the finger. This was not a presumptuous test of God, but a firm act of reliance upon the truth of Scripture. We do not know whether Bilney felt the searing heat of that flame, but we do know that God gave him in that moment the grace to bear it. On the morrow... Little Bilney did not waver from his purpose. A crowd had gathered in the streets of Norwich as he walked resolutely to the fire. Some thought that the weak and frail man would probably recant again, but as the faggots were piled around him, little Bilney raised himself to his full height and said in a firm voice, Good people, I am come hither to die. After reciting Psalm 143, 
he took off his outer garments and was bound to the stake. As the torch was applied to the wood, Billy did not flinch. The flames burned high around his face, but a strong wind blew them away. Bilney stood firm as the pile was ignited a second and then a third time. The third time the fire burned in full strength. Whatever pain the noble martyr felt was bearable, for Bilney held his head high as the flames rose in full intensity around him. He cried out one brief phrase in Latin, Jesu credo, Jesus, I believe. With that dying prayer of faith, little Bilney sunk downward into the fire, and the flames consumed all that was mortal. But in that fire was one like unto the Son of Man, the Christ who had promised, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. As we complete our journey through the book of Jude, and we come to the end of our narrow road, it's going to be important to stop and unpack two themes that pervade the book. Two themes that have been hidden in plain sight throughout this letter. The author Jude has woven the use of two key words throughout his text. And those words tell us a lot about the intent and the theme of his writing. The first word is the word beloved. It appears in the following verses in Jude. And if you're looking for Jude, it's at the very back of your Bible, just before Revelation. It appears in verse 1, to those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 3, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you. Verse 17, but you must remember, beloved. And verse 20, but you, beloved. Beloved, or agapitos, is a Greek word meaning loved, beloved, or dear. And in the Greek-speaking world, this word was intimately tied to those undergoing suffering and death. In fact, this is consistent with our own time and culture. One of the most common places we find this word used in our day is in the obituaries. Is the term that alludes to love and affection for one who has suffered and or died. Its usage in Scripture comes to us in Genesis 22, as Abraham is about to sacrifice his son. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word used to describe Abraham's son is beloved. And again, just prior to the sacrifice of his son Jesus at the transfiguration, God calls out, this is my beloved son. And Jude's use of the word reveals a theme in this letter that characterizes its audience as one undergoing suffering and persecution. We've just described one of the many heartbreaking methods of torture used on followers of Jesus Christ in the Middle Ages, and no doubt we're familiar with the graphic characterizations of Christians persecuted during Jude's lifetime in the first century. And so it's important that we understand that Jude is writing with a context of persecution in mind. Secondly, Jude uses the word keep or kept throughout the book. To those who were called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, verse 1. Verse 6, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. Verse 21, keep yourself in the love of God. And verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you. Keep or philaso means to guard, to protect. And so surrounding this theme of persecution and attacks on sound doctrine is the counter theme of support and supernatural strength coming from Christ. Communicating that no matter how daunting the pressures of the enemies of truth, the true believer will prevail. Because Christ will prevail. Christ has prevailed. Christ will keep us. Christ will guard us. And Christ will protect us. And so today our big idea is, 
In a world hell-bent on tearing down God's truth and His followers, true believers can rest in the assurance that Christ will sustain us in our commitment to rejecting false teaching and continuing to teach sound doctrine. As we journey down this narrow road, it's obvious our destination is salvation. We are being kept and guarded for Christ and God's glory. But not only are we kept for Christ, we are also kept by Christ. Said another way, Christ is not only the object of our faith, He is also the source of our faith. Turn with me to Jude, beginning in verse 17. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Pray with me. <clears throat> Father God, draw our hearts close to yours as we consider your guidance with respect to false teaching as we study what it means to have you keep us for your glory. We commit this time to you in your name. Amen. The following is a direct quote from the so-called faith statement of a church in our province. I'm not going to give the name of the church in question, as my intention here is not to tear down the body of Christ, but rather to illustrate an important point about false teaching. This is a church that is part of what many here would consider a mainstream evangelical denomination. I quote, Based on Treaty 7 land in Calgary, Alberta, the blank church is a Jesus-centered, affirming community called to experience and to be God's presence everywhere. We believe that church happens wherever we are, at home, work, school, and play. We want to live into God's dream of a world where everyone is valued, connected, and renewed in love. Our biblical posture, we approach the Bible with sincere devotion and intellectual honesty while avoiding unhelpful literalism. This ancient and diverse collection of writings is so many things, divinely inspired, trustworthy, challenging, and beautiful. These sacred written words are what point us to the word of God, which is Christ. However, biblical authorship and interpretation also come to us through human hands and are not necessarily inerrant or infallible. As Christians, we humbly rely on the Holy Spirit's help, careful study, and dialogue among diverse voices to understand and apply the Bible today. And LGBTQ+, our congregation voted overwhelmingly in favor of fully affirming people of all genders, identities, gender expressions, and sexual orientations, welcoming them into full participation in the life, discipleship, and leadership of the church, including baptism, communion, marriage, and roles in leadership, worship, children's ministry, end quote. <clears throat> if you're just turning into the live stream now or you haven't been paying attention for 30 seconds, there's literally nothing in that statement that the Church of Redemption Olds would endorse. To be clear, and finally and sadly, other publicly available information reveals that the church in question is in the process of being removed from their denomination affiliation. Which brings us to our first point, and that is that false teachers tear down. Starting in verse 17, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions of worldly people devoid of the Spirit. False teachers don't keep us, they don't protect us, and they don't guard us. They tear down what is good, they expose us, and they destroy us. But Jude makes it clear that nothing here should come as a surprise. First of all, point A, false teachers were predicted by the apostles. In verse 17, the apostle Paul writes in Acts 20, 29-30, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among our own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 4. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are dead. And the Apostle John, in 2 John, verses 7 and then 10. I say this because many deceivers have gone out into the world. They deny that Jesus Christ came in a real body. Such a person is a deceiver and an antichrist. In verse 10, If anyone comes to your meeting and does not teach the truth about Christ, don't invite that person into your home or give any kind of encouragement. The context there for home would have been more like a home church. Don't invite them into your home church. The application here and takeaway is really twofold. While we need to be concerned, we needn't be surprised. It was predicted, we have been warned, and it's going to happen. And in spite of it happening, God's truth will prevail and His purposes will be accomplished. In the meantime, we need to be discerning about the teachings we hear and accept, which brings us to our second sub-point in verse 18, where Jude points out one of the litmus tests for these false teachers. Point B is false teachers are self-serving. Verse 18, they said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Teachers who are most concerned about furthering their own personal or political or economic agenda are the ones most likely to be teaching false doctrine. This is a red flag for false teaching. In verse 11, Jude points out the bad examples from the Old Testament of teachers who had their own agenda, which led them to deceive themselves and others. Cain wanted to make his own rules, so he rejected God's design. Balaam wanted to make money at all costs, so he rejected God's direction. And Korah wanted to be the boss, so he rejected God's dominion. A couple questions for ourselves. Number one, are we self-serving in our doctrinal positions? On the one hand, let's be on the lookout for false teachers and false teaching so that we can avoid its harmful influence, but let's also apply that same vigilance to ourselves. Let's be careful about pushing or advocating for doctrinal positions because they advance our own purposes, our own causes, our own feelings. This is, as an example, the very root of the unbiblical teachings around the LGBTQ movement that have infiltrated the church today. These teachings are born out of a personal passion to be accepting and loving of others, but they have led to accepting and then loving and then endorsing that sin That's an obvious example, but there may be some less obvious ones closer to home. Let's ensure that we are not self-serving in how we approach doctrine. And finally, verse 19 gets to the punchline. False teachers cause division. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. Verse 19. My purpose here today is to highlight and to illustrate um, and... uh, I think it's relevant for our time, and so as a final example, <laughs> I'll apologize in advance for any feelings that may be hurt, or truly, um, my objective here is not to put up barriers, but I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the example sitting under our very feet this morning. Over the past four decades,
the United Church of Canada has been very public and vocal about its decision to drift significantly away from the sound biblical doctrine. And it's entirely reasonable to insert that there is a direct correlation between the diminishing of the priority of biblical teaching and the diminishing of its congregations. By its own accounting, its own numbers shrinking by 40% in the last decade, further evidenced by the mass liquidation of church buildings across the country. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ, and the Bible calls us to demonstrate that love by holding one another accountable, and as verse 22 will point out, hating the sins and false doctrine that divide and destroy. And they mention this example only in the regard that it can provide a timely and relevant illustration of the destructive nature of false doctrine. When we're tempted to follow our heart on matters of biblical doctrine that are increasingly rejected by the world around us, we must heed the warnings in Jude. So having been warned of the dangers of false teaching and remaining anchored in our hope of being kept for Christ, how can we avoid falling into these traps and repeating the mistakes we see all around us? Well, I'm glad you asked. In verses 20 to 23, Jude provides guidance on how we can contend for the faith. As we've identified in previous series, verses 3 and 4 are the thesis of Jude's letter. Turn with me to verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude is now delivering on his intention to show us how to contend for the faith as he identifies that point number two, true believers build up. Before we dive in, let's step back to gain additional context that will aid our study of this passage. Scholars have identified 18 triads or groupings of three in Jude's writing. Let's recap just a few of these to get a sense of how prevalent they are in his writing. Verse 1a, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. 1b, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 2, may peace, mercy, and love be multiplied to you. Verses 5 through 7 is the triad of rebels, rebellious Israelites who did not believe. Verse 5, the fallen angels, verse 6, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. In verse 8, we see the conduct of false teachers. They pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and they slander celestial beings. In verse 11, we see the wicked personalities of Cain, Balaam, Korah. Verse 19, characteristics of false teachers. They cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Holy Spirit. And now in verses 20 and 21, Jude has woven two other triads into his writing. The first is faith, hope, and love. Most holy faith... Then secondly, hope, which is bound up in the words waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And finally, the love of God. And the second triad is, this, is the Holy Trinity. Love of God, praying in the Holy Spirit, and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Son. And so it's on the foundation of these two triads that Jude offers his prescription for true believers to build up. Reinforcing the fact that in as much as we are kept for Christ, we are also in fact kept by Christ. Read with me in Jude 20 through 22. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Our first directive here is to build up in prayer. Verse 20. It seems that not a sermon can go by that I can't be reminded of the critical importance of prayer. 
Personally, it's one of the most challenging areas of my walk with God. And so as I implore you to prioritize time in prayer with the Lord, know that I am right there beside you with a finger pointed squarely at myself. As we think about how difficult it can be to stand up to false teaching, to push back on false teaching, and to avoid our own propensity to drift in our doctrine, there is an intangibility to the challenge. How do I confront false teaching while demonstrating God's grace? How do I remain committed to hard truths while showing mercy to those around me? How can I be sure that I will remain faithful to God's word when I face immense pressures to give in to the world around me? The only certain answer we are offered is prayer. God will provide answers to all of these questions, and he provides those answers when we spend time with him in prayer. Next, verse 21 reminds us to be built up in patience. Jude 21, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Just the simple process of being forced to wait for something strengthens us in our faith. Patience is a fundamental aspect of our sanctification. And this is a golden parenting teaching moment, so let's take it. One of the number one things we can do to help our children grow in their walk with God is to teach them to wait. Children don't need everything right away, and they rarely need things when they want them. If God's Word teaches us one thing, it's that we need to submit to His timing and not ours. The opportunities to demonstrate this and live this out are all around us. Our child demands our attention while we're in the middle of a conversation. We make them wait until we're finished. Our child asks for something. We don't always give it to them right away. Our child doesn't want to wait until after church to play and talk. We make them sit quietly through the service. The list of these small opportunities is endless, but each one is a precious opportunity to develop patience in our children so that they too will be patient in the working out of their own salvation. Don't miss these opportunities to build a godly character in your children. Both you and they may live to regret it if you don't. Patience or a lack thereof is really at the root of the motivation for false teaching. We don't want to wait until marriage to have sex, so we endorse premarital sex. We don't want to put in the hard work of repairing a deeply broken view on human sexuality, and so we endorse homosexuality. We don't want to put in the hard work of defending a biblical view of creation, and so we adopt the status quo views on evolution. We don't want to put in the time to battle and fight against sin in our own lives, and so we just stop talking about it, period. But we can achieve all these things in Christ and by the power of Christ. Which brings us to our response to those around us who don't quite see things the same way. The exclusive nature of God's salvation and the narrow road are particularly offensive to the world around us. This exclusivity is perceived and positioned as arrogance and pride. Who are you or we to say that there is only one way to God? In verses 22 and 23, Jude provides a framework or a plan for how Christ asks us to respond. We build up in prayer, we build up in patience, and we build up with a plan. Turn with me to verse 22 and 23. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Now, before we unpack these verses to see that plan, we need to pause to clear out a roadblock. And of course, no sermon in Jude would be complete without addressing some textual issue. The beauty of God's Word is that we can approach these issues with confidence that His Word is divinely inspired, and even in the face of human penmanship, it is inerrant and it is infallible. And I believe, given what we see cropping up, 
in the world around us today, this exercise is particularly valuable. If you're reading along in the King James Version as an example, you will have noticed a slightly different approach to the translation of Jude 22 and 23, where the ESV and almost all of the other major translations use a three or triple clause approach. The King James Version uses a dual clause approach. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. That's another variant. In fact, there are five variations of this text in the manuscripts available to us today. Three with a dual clause, and two with a triple clause approach. And the vast majority of scholars agree with a triple clause, clause approach we find in the ESV based on two factors. Number one, those manuscripts that are written earlier and closer to the time Jude actually wrote the book, some of them conceivably copied directly from the papyrus upon which Jude himself wrote, these manuscripts carry added weight in determining the original words. And then number two, as we have seen, Jude has laid down a clear pattern of writing in triads or triplicate, and so it would follow that these verses are also certainly the same in triplicate form. And so we can be rest assured of the following, that the words before us are very close and exactly what Jude wrote. And number one, we have far more evidence of the text of the New Testament than in any other ancient book. Number two, the vast majority of the differences among the manuscripts involve spelling or grammatical differences that do not affect the meaning or the sense of the text. And number three, all Greek New Testament texts teach the same things about every important point of Christian doctrine and ethics. And so back to the plan from Jude, which divides our approach into three responses to three different groups. And that is mercy for doubters, number one. Number two, rescuing the fallen. And number three, hating the sin of the lost. So sub-point one, having mercy for doubters. Verse 22, this first group are those that are wavering. They have not rejected the truth. They have not committed themselves to false teaching, but they are not also not firmly rooted in sound doctrine, and they are pausing to consider their options. Those pondering sex outside of marriage. Those reconsidering the importance of regularly attending church. Or maybe those that are questioning the inerrancy of Scripture. The, the prescription here is to be compassionate. This may mean taking time to understand their perspective, taking time to engage them in dialogue, and having patience to continually point them back to the truth. The second group, rescue the fallen, verse 23a. These are those that are flirting with false teaching or those that are perched themselves on the brink of the abyss. Jude's imagery of snatching them out of the fire almost certainly comes from the texts in Amos 4 and Zechariah 3. Follow along on the screen here, Amos 4.11. I destroyed some of your cities as I destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Those of you who survived were like charred sticks pulled from a fire. But still you would not return to me, says the Lord. In Zechariah 3, verses 1 to 4. Then the angel showed me Yeshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. The accuser Satan was there at the angel's right hand, making accusations against Yeshua. And the Lord said to Satan, I, the Lord, reject your accusation, Satan. Yes, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebukes you. This man is like a burning stick that has been snatched from the fire. Yeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood there before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, Take off his filthy clothes. And turning to Jeshua, he said, See, I have taken away your sins, and now I am giving you these fine new clothes. These are people that have begun to pursue an unbiblical lifestyle. People that have made choices that do not clearly align with God's precepts. The response here is a posture of rescue. We are not called to abandon them, but rather we are called to call them, to call them back from the brink. This likely means as we pursue them that they will respond in anger. 
they may lash out in response. These individuals are teetering on the precipice, but it's still safe to attempt to save them. However, we in all likelihood need to use a different approach for this last group. Verse 23b, hate the sin of the lost. 23b says, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. It's almost certain that the mercy Jude talks about here is very different than the mercy we are to show the first group. And we should assume that because of the qualifications that follow in the text. Let's work from the end backwards to the beginning to gain the full context. Hating even the garment stained by the flesh is again a very clear reference to Zechariah 3.3. Yeshua's clothing was filthy as he stood before the angel. So the angel said to the others standing there, take off his filthy clothes. The word filthy in Zechariah refers to human excrement, and the word Jude uses for clothing refers to the undergarment worn closest to the body. In modern English, the phrase might best be summarized as soiled underwear. The sin of their rejection of God's love is so disgusting we cannot accommodate it for even a moment. My wife Lisa worked for almost seven years in trauma surgery at the Foothills Hospital in Calgary. And during the course of that time, she saw any number of patients who would have been homeless drug addicts who had been critically injured and needed their specialized care. And one can only imagine the state in which they would arrive, covered in their own feces, excrement, and filth, soiled right through to the bone. And the first response, often before any medical treatment could be afforded, was to completely strip them down and clean them. And those clothes were not returned upon discharge. They were likely burned. For those in need of life-saving medical procedures in our hospitals, there is zero accommodation for the filth and disease that soils their garments. And no one would disagree with this approach to life-saving medicine. And in exactly the same way, there can be no accommodation for the stain and filth of the sin of the lost if they are to receive soul-saving treatment from God. Working back one more step, the mercy needs to be accompanied by fear. This speaks to the need for cautiousness as we approach and engage this group. This group quite likely includes the false teachers. And taken together, this is a much different mercy than is afforded the first group. It requires caution and distance. And the most practical response then is likely prayer. And so with a view on how true believers can build up through prayer, patience, and with a plan, Jude can at last comment on our common salvation as he ends his sermon emphasizing that there is one God who saves. Verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. You've undoubtedly heard these words before as they represent what is probably the most popular doxology in the New Testament. The word doxology comes from the Greek word for glory, and New Testament doxologies, including this one, serve to remind the reader of who God is and what the ultimate purpose of everything is, His glory. However, to quote Douglas Moo, what is most important is that we be careful that these words do not become on our lips a thoughtless and even hypocritical recitation of words. Here, of course, lies the danger in using Jude's doxology in worship. We hear the words so often that they cease to have any meaning for us. They are all jumbled together in our heads, to him who is able to keep you, to the only wise God. Thus we need to pause and reflect on what these words really mean 
and be prepared to live as if we meant them. So let's tackle this doxology in three parts. Firstly, to keep you from stumbling. As we journey life's narrow road, we face the risk of stumbling. Not only the risk of stumbling outside of the lane markers of obedience to God's word, but also the risk of stumbling as we seek to refute and reject false teachers and false teaching in a loving manner. Regardless of which it is, we remain confident that it is Christ who will keep us from stumbling. If you were born in the 80s or earlier, you likely remember this bumper sticker. And I think it's been updated with the following one. <clears throat> to be clear, I wouldn't recommend either. And while I'm sure the original version was well-intentioned, it is so deeply incorrect at a theological level. God isn't our co-pilot. He's not there for some advice or to grab the steering wheel while we bang on a text. He is supposed to be the one driving. We are kept on the road by Christ himself. And in the face of false teaching and false teachers seemingly everywhere we look, it is only with Christ in control of our lives that we can avoid stumbling. And more importantly, part two of the doxology, to present you as blameless. It is Christ alone who presents us as blameless before God on the day of judgment. Man's attempt to reconfigure God's truth, to reconstruct God's design for our lives, to redefine right and wrong will never save man. This is the false mirage of, this is the mirage of false teaching. It may sound good, it may scratch our itch, it may satisfy our earthly desire, but no amount of concocting or inventing or constructing our own teachings can ultimately overcome our sin problem. Either there is a God or there isn't. And if there is a God, which there is, then we don't get to make the rules. God makes the rules, and by His very definition, as God, He has made them. And His rules contemplate our redemption only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And finally, He does so for one purpose, and that purpose is His glory. Period. Dot. And so at the conclusion of Jude, recognizing and understanding the context of Jude's appeal to persecuted believers, to contend for the truth, we'd be remiss not to consider how Jude himself faced persecution. It's not entirely clear how Jude died, but we can be very confident that he was martyred for his faith. And as he faced his execution, no doubt he wrapped himself in the truth of his own doxology. He also had the example of his older brother, his older half-brother, Jesus. Half a century earlier, Jesus also stared death in the face. But not just with his life at stake, but rather the eternal life of all believers at stake. <clears throat> Let's look at the words of Matthew 26 through this lens. You could read with me on the screen here. Then Jesus went with them to the olive grove called Gethsemane. And he said, sit here while I go over here to pray. He took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, James and John, and he became anguished and distressed. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. He went on a little farther and bowed with his face to the ground, praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet I want your will to be done not mine. Then he returned to the disciples and found them asleep. He said to Peter, couldn't you watch with me even one hour? Keep watch and pray so that you will not give in to temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Then Jesus left them a second time and prayed, my father, if this cup cannot be taken away unless I drink it, your will be done. 
the Pharisees and Sadducees, the false teachers of Christ's day, had divided the people and secured Jesus' execution. As Christ comes to the cross, all of creation, including you and I, scoff at him. And even as his own father abandons him, he, he trusts the will of his father. And just when it seems that there is no hope for God, no hope for God's truth to prevail, as God's beloved son bleeds out on the cross, exhausted to his last breath, sealed in a tomb, the final nail driven into the coffin of creation's ultimate martyr, Jesus Christ emerges as the eternal victor. God's word, God's literal world, word prevails. Down through the ages, false prophets, false teachers, false religions would seek to distort and tear down the truth of God's word. And in the clearest demonstration possible, in the most well-documented event in ancient history, in the face of all those false teachers, false religions, and in fact, in the face of all mankind, God demonstrates that his word prevails. His truth is unchangeable, and that his elect are not only kept for Christ, they are kept by Christ. As the worship team comes to lead us in preparation for communion, I'd ask that we prepare our hearts for communion. This table and these elements are not the table of Redemption Church Olds. This is the Lord's table. And we do this in obedience to Him to commemorate Christ's death and resurrection. And if you're not a believer, and if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then please let the elements pass you by. They're not for you. Instead, use this time to search your heart and hear Jesus Christ's call on our life. <clears throat> Let's stand together.